Today we come to the end of our series on ambition. And although this could go much, much longer, at a certain point we need to bring it to an end. What I thought I would do here at the beginning is sort of look at what we've seen thus far and then examine two additional issues before we close out this series. We began by looking at the matter of calling against, as a background against which we should look at the issue of ambition. We've tried to look at ambition in light of creation, fall, and redemption. That is, what was ambition in a perfect world, and then how has it become twisted, and then how is God untwisting it in redemption? As I've mentioned before, and we've seen it in other studies, where so many people go wrong is they begin in the fall. They see something that is twisted, that is mangled, and in redemption they try to reshape it, but they have, in essence, no pattern against which to work. If we begin in creation, we see what God originally intended. And so when we come to redemption, we can see that God is taking us back there. He, there is a pattern against which he is working. So what was ambition like in a perfect world? It almost seems dare I say blasphemous, to say ambition in a perfect world. Because for us, we think of it so often as being something that is twisted. We're not told much about what the perfect world was like with Adam and Eve. But I think, and we looked at this, that we can reconstruct what God intended ambition to be in a created world, in the, in the perfect world before the fall. Based in part on how we have rebelled against that, that Eve wanted to be God, based in part on what we see in the person of Jesus Christ, and then based on what our calling is as God's people. And as we saw, if you take these three things together, can be summarized in one word, and that word is glory. The glory of God. Creation has the purpose of revealing the glory of God. And even in a fallen world, even where things are mangled and twisted, we still have the purpose of revealing the glory of God. We are part of God's creation, those made in his image. And so our purpose is to reveal the glory of God. That's why we were, we were created. And in Eden, prior to sin coming into the world, this is what Adam and Eve were all about. They had the ambition to bring glory to God. It is the nature of ambition to perceive something as having value and therefore to prize it and then to pursue it. And that is why people are willing to sacrifice things in the name of ambition. Well, if God's glory is something that we perceive as having value and we prize it above all things, then we will pursue it. This is what we see in Adam and Eve. But then they sin in Genesis chapter 3. And as a result, the world is a broken place. But let us not forget, it is not a God-forsaken place. God is still at work in us, through us, behind us, in front of us, all around us. God has a great deal he wishes to accomplish and to do so in part through us. This means, I believe, that there is no room, there is no place for Christians to say, I have no ambition. If, in fact, our ambition is to reveal the glory of God, and God is working through us in his creation, we should have ambition. But ambition has been misunderstood. 
because of the way it has been corrupted and twisted. I mentioned this at the end of one of the sermons in the series, and I just thought I would repeat it, that being a pastor now for 37 years, I've seen a split among Christians, that those of us who were raised in the church tend to see ambition as only wrong and, and really struggle in the area of ambition, that we just think that it's wrong. For those who became Christians later in life, they don't see that. What they do is they split their lives into two parts, the secular part and the religious part or the sacred part. And so ambition for them is perfectly acceptable in the, sac- in the secular part, and so they have no problem with ambition. I've said this throughout the series, ambition is not wrong in and of itself. Okay? Because it existed in creation, it exists in redemption. But we are here in the fallen world, and so if we're not careful, we will say it is wrong, it is wrong, it needs to be thrown out, and we will miss a wonderful gift from God. So how is it redeemed? How is it that God is redeeming our ambition? As I said in this series, any discussion of redemption must begin with the person of Jesus. He who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. God's glory, his honor, his esteem, his perfection, his value are seen in the person of Jesus Christ. That is where God's glory was. And yet, that is only a part of the story. Jesus came to bring glory to the Father. We read this time and time again. We who are God's people should have the same desire. In fact, the definition of Christian conversion is that we love the Savior and we want to live for his glory. As we saw in Jesus, the motive of ambition is rescued. You see, I don't have to be ambitious to do something so God will love me. In Jesus Christ, God has already loved me and saved me. And so I can strike out boldly with ambition because I know that God loves me. I mentioned this before, it's not in my notes, but I did mention in the series, uh, Dennis Miller said once about one of his kids, when they were two or three years old, just acting extremely cute. And he said, you know, relax, kid, you got the job. You know, we're going to keep you. And I think as Christians, sometimes we're just so busy trying to do things, and, and God, I think, wants to say to us, relax, kid, I love you. In Jesus Christ, you are mine. And so our motives for ambition are not to somehow win God's favor. It is because we are God's people that we have ambition, or we should. Then we saw that Jesus rescues the obedience of ambition. In Jesus we see perfect obedience, but we also see what we may face, and that is obedience that is misunderstood, obedience that is ignored, or ultimately rejected. Because Jesus was obedient, he was rejected by men. And lastly, Jesus rescues the joy of ambition. We no longer live being ambitious for approval. We are to act ambitious because we have God's approval. In the first, we are disillusioned if somehow we can imagine that we can win God's favor. In the second, we are inspired, or we should be, and we should be filled with joy to do the things that God has called us to do. What about humility? We looked at this in this series. 
because humility and ambition seem to be in, in conflict with each other. Well, from what we saw about the paradoxes of ambition, true humility promotes true or great ambition. We looked at this in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. How do humility and ambition coexist? Well, in this amazing passage, we see that the humility of Jesus Christ is displayed or demonstrated in his actions. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Simply put, the humility of Jesus in coming to this world did not restrain his ambition or his desire to bring glory to the Father. Rather, his humility defined his ambition. When we become too humble to be ambitious, we have stopped becoming humble. We really don't understand what humility is. Humility should never be an excuse for inactivity. That I'm, No, I can't do that. I'm, just, I'm not worthy. And just sort of look down at the ground and imagine that that is humility. I think there is a place for that, looking at the ground. But there is not a place for inactivity. Our humility should harness our ambition, not hinder it. If we are too humble to be ambitious, then we really have missed the boat. We have an incorrect understanding of humility. What we see in Jesus is the one who is the epitome of humility is also the epitome of ambition to bring glory to God the Father. One more thing before we move on today, and we looked at this last week, and that is contentment. When we have ambitions and things don't turn out as we had hoped or had planned, it is natural that we would be disappointed. But when disappointment turns to discontentment, this should sort of set off an alarm in our head that there was much more to our ambitions than we realized. We may have thought, well, I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this for others, not for myself. But then when it doesn't work out and we become very upset, we need to step back and say, well, wait a minute. Was I really doing that for God? Was I doing that for myself? And that's why I'm so upset that I did not achieve what I hoped to get. I mentioned last week from Thomas Watson's book, The Art of Divine Contentment. If we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. That is to say, when we don't have what we desire, it is important for us to acknowledge and recognize that we have far, far more than we deserve. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Paul possessed what one other Puritan writer, Jeremy Burroughs, called the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And what is contentment? It means being satisfied and at peace with God's will in all situations. We sang about it in our last hymn, Teach Me Thy Way, O Lord. In Paul's life, we see that because his ambitions were not selfish, they weren't self-centered, he could live with them being unfulfilled. It is when we become upset because our ambitions are not fulfilled 
that I think we should look in the mirror and realize that our ambitions were actually about us rather than bringing glory to God. Paul had dreams. Paul had ambitions. We've seen this in the series. But if they did not, if they were not satisfied, that was God's business. Paul was God-focused rather than self-focused. Paul was able to aspire for more while resting peacefully in what God had provided. He hungered for more, but he was content with less. Paul had learned to be content while being ambitious. And by God's grace, may we learn the same. Today, there are two more aspects that I want us to consider before we close this series. The first, the first is the issue of risk. Where there is ambition, there must be risk. As Dave Harvey puts it in his book on ambition, risk is the cost of ambition. Ambition and risk are the human ingredients God put, or uses to put the gospel into circulation. See, when we face a risky situation, when we face a risk, that we, a situation where we were going to have to take a risk, we have one of two options. The first, in fact, is to do nothing, to avoid the risk and thereby protect ourselves because the risk may have certain dangers with it. And so we may simply avoid it and say, no, I'm not going to go down that path. The second choice is to move into the situation, trusting in God, not saying, well, there's no risk, I'm not worried about it. There is risk, but we accept it as a part of the path God has laid out for us. We need to understand that risk happens because we are not, are not omniscient. We don't know everything. So there are those things before us that are the unknown. And these bring with them an element of risk. You may remember that I mentioned two times in the New Testament, in the NIV, we find the word ambition used in a positive way. One was in Romans 15:20. Paul writes to the Roman Christians, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. It's a fairly dramatic statement, at least in two parts. The first is that he wanted to preach where no one else had preached. That sounds okay. But he didn't want to build on somebody else's foundation. And that, but that was Paul's ambition. Today, in Acts chapter 20, Paul speaks again, I would say, of ambition, but in terms of risk. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is leaving Ephesus for the last time. He is going back to Jerusalem. And so he calls for the elders of Ephesus, he's in Miletus, and calls for them to come and so he can address them one more time before he leaves town. Look, if you would, beginning in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. 
And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Dave Harvey in his book on ambition says, we carry the same gospel Paul carried and it requires us to have a similar ambition. But some might object. In fact, Say, I objected. I am not an apostle. I'm certainly not the apostle Paul. And then some of you might say, well, Damon, yes, but you are in ministry like Paul, and so this passage has a lot more to say to you than it does to us. Let's stop a minute and, and remember that the gospel is not simply about people getting saved and going to heaven. That the gospel includes the redeeming of all of life. It's not merely a matter of having one's sins forgiven, amazing though that is. It is not simply a matter of having the gift of eternal life, God's life given to us, amazing though that is. It means the redeeming and the restoring of all things to what God intended in creation. Remember creation, fall, and redemption. How we live our lives, what we do with our lives, is to be done with this in mind, that we are the people of the good news. In his book, Harvey mentions this couple um, who believed it was their calling in life to foster and adopt disabled children um, with, with severe health problems. And at one point, uh, uh, Harvey writes, a wife... Um, who with her husband had fostered and adopted these children, says this, it's the gospel. She describes what they're doing. It drives everything. The gospel is about God loving the unlovely through Christ and calling us to do the same. It's reaching those who can't help themselves. Parenting kids who have no one else can claim, or, I'm sorry, parenting kids who no one else can claim is our way of showing God's love to them. We will value the gospel above all else and trust God with the rest. All, I've, all of that is to say that when we look at Paul, we can see in him a good example of risk and ambition. And we should not say, well, that's Paul, that's the apostle, that's ministry. It is the gospel and we are to live out the gospel in our lives. In Paul, we can see that ambition rescues us by exerting certain claims on us. The first claim that ambition or that risk puts on us is to step out beyond what we know. If you look at verse number 20, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. If by God's grace we are ambitious and we embrace risk, it rescues us from misplaced security. As I said, we have one of two options. We can either back away and say, I'm not going there because of the risk, or we can trust God and go down that path. Paul went down that path, but it was a risk because he did not know what would happen to him. We find a pattern in Paul's life that God would give him direction, 
but he would not tell him what the outcome would be. Um, You could put it simply this way, going but not knowing. This is how Paul lived his life. It actually began in Acts chapter 9 at his conversion. Uh, Let me read to you. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Verse 6. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. In this simple command in this verse, we see the beginning of a total reorientation program in Saul's life, who later became Paul. He is told, do this, and then things will be explained later. You will be told later what else you should do. In Acts chapter 13, before the first missionary journey, this is 14 years later, 14 years after his conversion, The church in Antioch, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. You'll notice that God never specified what that work was. He simply tells the church, set these two men apart. About direction and destination, God would give them more information. God would get back to them about that later. In Acts chapter 16, the uncertainty continues. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing, standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Fine, you have a vision, a man of Macedonia, but I don't know if you're aware of this, Macedonia is a big place. It's a province, the province of Macedonia. Where in Macedonia are they supposed to go? God doesn't tell them. But God, in essence, stirs Paul's ambition enough that his faith in God is not diminished. God doesn't say, okay, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. He simply tells him, you need to go. And if you remember the story, Paul went over, and the first place he went to was Philippi, and he ended up in jail. Um, God says, go. But he doesn't necessarily tell Paul what is going to happen. Neither does he with us. In our text, God compels, the Spirit compels Paul to go, but then withholds what will happen to him. Paul has an ambition and he is going for it, but he doesn't know the outcome. He only knows that it is risky. He is going, but he does not know what will happen. So risk, in a sense, removes from us that sense of security that I know how this is going to play out. I know how this is going to end up. We really do not. The second claim is it prepares us for difficulty. Ambition with risk rescues us from distracting comforts. Again, back to our text in verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. 
I think if we had our way, we would say to God about Paul's situation, but do we not in fact say this about our situation, either tell me the whole thing, tell me how it's all going to turn out, or don't tell me anything. Okay, don't tell me a little bit like this, yeah, go and do this and there, there may be some difficulties. Spell it out. Am I going to end up in jail again? Am I going to be beaten again? Am I going to make it this time? I mean, God has been gracious in sparing his life. What is going to happen? If you're not going to tell me everything that's going to happen, then don't tell me anything at all. But in fact, that is not the way God works. Why does God even tell Paul that there will be difficulty ahead? Let's make it personal. Why does God want us to know that difficulty will accompany the pursuit of our ambitions? Well, I think our natural tendency is to seek the path of least resistance. Risk, difficulty, a high cost is something we would rather avoid. But if we want to glorify God through godly ambition, we should prepare for difficulties. God has a purpose in them. God has a design in them. One of the things that these things do, these difficulties do, is they strip down and they violate our comforts. We would rather be comfortable, and they take that away from us. But what they do is they remind us of what is truly important. Godly ambition rescues us from the distraction of trying to follow Christ and seek comfort at the same time. If we are going to have godly ambition, we must accept risk. The third claim that risk puts on us is that it values, it tells us to value the gospel above all. The end of the passage, as I read it, verse number 24, in light of the unknown difficulties that are coming, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Ambition tells us that there is nothing more important than living out the grace of God in our lives in the gospel. What is the most important thing to us? And here we are confronted about the truth of our ambitions. Discontentment and self-centeredness, I think, can come to the front here. James wrote in his epistle, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And while it may not be, I'm fairly certain that James had ambition in mind when he speaks of the pollution of the world, I think the application can be made. What is the most important thing to us? It should be the grace of God as seen in the gospel. More could be said, but let me move on. A warning about risk. Do you have a fear of risk? Yes, and you should. That's good. Risk is nothing to be ignored. Risk for risk's sake is reckless. And we should not imagine that this is what God wants. That this is To have faith is to risk for the sake of risking. This is not the call of God in our lives. 
But I believe that there is a call to risk for the sake of the gospel. Living out the truth of who Jesus Christ is, no matter the cost. So that's it, risk. There's one more matter that I want to talk to, talk to you about, and then we will finish. And that is failure. You might be wondering what possessed me to end a series on ambition by talking about failure. Shouldn't we have talked about that earlier in the series and sort of end on an up note? Let's understand that to be human is to experience failure. And to be a child of God is to experience failure. Failure finds us all. But what we need to affirm today is that, the, is that God is Lord over all, even our failures. The question is, how will we respond to our failures? Perhaps we should ask, will failure kill my ambition? Harvey says that failure is like the flu, and people want to avoid it at all costs. But we need to make a distinction between the act of failing and God's purposes in our failing. We need to recognize that with ambition comes failure. We're not perfect. Things don't always turn out the way that we want. So why do we fail? Well, I would suggest to you at least two reasons, perhaps more. The first is we are not God. God is self-sufficient. We are dependent, though we forget that from time to time. God knows all. We know little. God is wise. We can be very foolish. God is all-powerful. We are weak. So sometimes we fail because we're human and we are unable, we don't see, we're not omniscient. We don't know what's around the corner. And so we, by God's grace, make the best decision that we can make because we don't know what's going to happen next. And in fact, we may fail. We cannot anticipate all contingencies. But God is Lord even over our failures. There is, however, a second and a darker reason for our failure, and that is that we are sinners. As we acknowledged in our prayer of confession today, we fail in every area of our lives. But we can and we should learn from failure. We can learn, as we've seen in this series, that failure can be ambition denied. God shapes us by redeeming and reshaping our ambition. And sometimes this means that God allows us to fail. I think in the same way that a parent may allow a child to fall or to imagine that they are lost in the grocery store, God allows us to fail that he might teach us. Failure humanizes us. It connects us with the reality that there is a vast difference between what I can imagine and what is real, what my ambitions are, and what actually happens. Failure disabuses me of the illusion that I am in control of my life. Sometimes failure is the tool God uses to get rid of, to uproot deeply entrenched pride. 1 Corinthians 10:12 So if you think you are standing firm be careful that you don't fall. Failure is hard. It hurts. 
And there are easier ways to learn humility. But sometimes God has to use failure to teach us his ways. How do we respond to it? Failure either because of my sin or because of lack of understanding on my part or because of nothing I have done wrong that things don't turn out as I thought they would. How will I respond to failure? If we were to have a second text for the sermon today, it would be Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. But the wicked are brought down by calamity. In other words, a child of God is going to fail. But we are, by God's grace, to get back up again. It should not be fatal to us when we fail. Failure should not be fatal. But it can be if we remove God from the equation. If we have planned carefully and it seems that this is for God's glory and everything seems to line up exactly right and it blows up in our face, do we imagine that God was absent from that? If we do, then in fact that failure may be fatal to us. It may destroy us if we're not careful. But if we understand that God is Lord over all, even our failures, I think it will change our thinking. Os Guinness wrote about this in one of his books. How do we react when we find that our noblest dreams and most profound strivings are staring in the face of failure? Never for a moment must we allow ourselves an excuse to ease up in pursuing God's call. In other words, well, I tried. It didn't work out, so I'm going to quit. Not for a second can we think of taking the bitter pill of apparent failure and sugarcoating it with rationalizations about the difficult times in which we live. God knew the times in which he called us to live, and he alone knows the outcome of our times, as he knows the outcome of our lives and our work. Our failures, in quotation marks, may be his successes. Our setbacks, quotation marks, may prove his turning points. Our disasters, in quotation marks, may turn out to be his triumphs. God is in control. We must never forget that, even in the midst of failure. In this series, we have seen that God has given each one of us a calling for the common good. And a part of what animates, or what energizes that calling is ambition. In the same way that creation has the purpose of revealing the glory of God, we who are created in the image of God and are being recreated in the image of Jesus Christ are to have the ambition of revealing the glory of God, pursuing that which we prize as having great value. Ambition is a gift from the Creator to enable us to do what He has called us to do. But sin, as it has with so much of life, has twisted ambition into something that is about our glory rather than the glory of God. Thus, redemption, or the redeeming of ambition, means untwisting ambition as we normally think of it. And it means returning to ambition as God had it in the garden, but as we see it in the person of Jesus Christ. The path, the way of humility, but as we've seen, ambition is marked by paradox. 
The greatest fulfillment is seen in emptiness. And true humility promotes great ambition. True humility is marked by activity. Activity that may be marked by risk or by failure. But above all, we are to be content, knowing that all things are in God's hands. About halfway through this series, I read a quote from Oz Guinness, and I thought I would read it again to close this series. On the one hand, we are told by a myriad of Christian speakers that we should be thinking about our legacy, the clear knowledge of our contribution about our time on earth, or after our time on earth. On the other hand, we are told by countless other Christians that ambition is always wrong, synonymous with egotism, it is selfish and quite unchristian. Both of these positions are wrong. In fact, they are the opposite way around. For as followers of Jesus, we can and should be ambitious. But we should never be concerned with our legacies. Those are in God's hands. He is Lord of all. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that by your grace and your spirit, we have learned in this series what it means to be your child and to be ambitious. Forgive us for those times in which we have shunned ambition, thinking it to be something wrong. Forgive us for those times in which our ambition has been wrong, has been about us and not you. Forgive us for those times when things didn't go right, and so we said, well, I, that's it, I'm just not going to do it. If God is not going to do his part, I just won't do this anymore. Forgive us for avoiding risk. Forgive us for allowing failure to have a greater power in our life, that we forget that you are in control. May we come to see who it is you have called us to be and for the amazing gifts you have given us, the talents, the abilities, the desires, and even ambition. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, and for the example he is to us of humility and activity and one whose life at least to some, appeared to be a failure, ending in death. But in fact, he has been raised to your right hand. And one day all will bow the knee and confess that he is Lord of all. I thank you for this day that we could gather to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.